0: So, uh, how's the weather been lately? It's been hot. It's been a little hot. Uh, your air conditioning bill is probably going up a little bit. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to I wanted to put you uh, you know put your mind at ease. Uh, well, actually, no. I wanted to give you clarification here because I know it's been hot for a while. It's, you know, we've had a a heat wave off and on for the past you know two or three weeks, right? It's been it's been pretty seriously hot. But I wanted to inform you that technically speaking, the beginning of summer began uh, just two days ago on June 20th. And so everything that you felt prior to June 20th was nothing more than a cool spring breeze. Okay, just wanted to clarify that for you. Technically speaking, it was not summer until Friday. And so whatever you felt before that, it, it just, you know, whatever heat you might have felt, it was nothing more than a, than a cool spring breeze. You say, "Oh, come on now! That's foolish. That's foolish. All the heat, all the 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 intensity, all the turning up, turning down the uh, the, thermo- the thermostat down to seventy degrees, so I could at least breathe in my home. I mean, Neil, summer is already here. It's been here for over a month, and uh, you know it, we, we're already in summer, regardless of what the first official day of summer is." summer is already here and it's been here for a long time in our study in mark today we're going to be in mark chapter 9 jesus is going to be turning to the disciples and saying the kingdom's already here it's been here since i've been here the kingdom of god is already here it's already present Regardless of what you think the official start date of the kingdom will be in the future, Jesus in Mark 9 is saying clearly to the disciples, the kingdom of God is already here. The title of my message today is The Kingdom is Already Here. Turn, if you will, to Mark chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. Mark 9, 1 to 13. Now, in our study in Mark, we've been going through this Gospel for some time now. And recently, the disciples have been going through some very difficult teaching. They've been hearing some very difficult teaching from the Lord Jesus Christ. They were being informed, as not, not, not even that long ago, we're talking a week ago, they were being informed by Jesus that Jesus was intending to suffer and die a martyr's death. And not only were they being informed that their Master was intending to go to the cross and die, but they were being told that they too were being called, were expected to go the way of the cross just like Jesus. They were being asked by their Master, by their Teacher, that just as He is going to die, so also they need to be willing to die for His sake. Now, they didn't fully comprehend this teaching, but undoubtedly their spirits would have been a bit low at a point like this. Hearing that their Master was intending to die and that He was expecting them to go the way of the cross. That would not have been particularly encouraging news for the disciples. And so they needed to be reminded that the dismal life course that Jesus was set upon And the One that He wanted them to follow. They needed to know that this dismal end to their lives would result in some kind of glory. Some kind of blessing. Some kind of hope of triumph. They needed some encouragement. They needed to know that if they walked this course, that the end would justify the means. And Jesus does not disappoint them. He gives them some encouragement in Mark 9. In Mark 9, we see Jesus reminding the disciples that the matchless power of the Kingdom of God is worth everything. Jesus, in Mark 9, is going to give us a glimpse of that matchless power of the Kingdom of God. He's going to give a glimpse of it to three of the disciples. And in so doing, He's going to use this glimpse into the glory of the kingdom, to motivate them, to inspire them to go the way of the cross. Turn to Mark 9. Let's read it together, verses 1 to 13. Mark 9, 1 to 13 says this And Jesus said to them, the disciples, Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present. With power. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and led them up on a high mountain, apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became shining exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked Him, saying, why did the scribes say, Elijah must come first? And then He answered and told them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that He must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come. And they did to him whatever they wished as it is written. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that Your Spirit would guide this this glimpse into Your Word as we catch a glimpse of the power of the Kingdom of God. May this glimpse motivate us to go the way of the cross as it was intended to motivate the disciples to do the same. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Take a look again at verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here with Him who would not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, this is a peculiar statement, kind of a cryptic statement, really. Uh, Jesus is insinuating that, that some among the, those listening to his very words would be able to see a glimpse of the kingdom of God in all of its power. This verse is not unlike what he just said earlier in verse 38. Take a look at the preceding verse up on the screen now. It, it, he said this to the disciples just earlier from, from chapter 9, verse 1. He said, For whoever is ashamed of Me in My words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. So, in verse 38, Jesus is speaking about Him coming personally in the glory of the Father with the holy angels or holy messengers. And now in verse 9-1, we see Him speaking about the Kingdom of God coming in power and being revealed to some who are privileged enough to see it. If you'll notice in green, the two words present and comes, those are the same uh, word in Greek. It's a Greek verb. And it's a little bit unfortunate that in 9.1 it's translated as present. A better way of translating it in the sense of the word would be having come. It's already come. Having come. And so, we might say that Jesus is saying here that there are some standing here in His presence who would not taste death, who would not die until they had seen the Kingdom of God having already come with power. Clearly Jesus is continuing a the theme here from verse 38. Ben Witherington of chapter 9 verse 1 writes this. He said, "Jesus did not just talk about a future coming of the dominion of God, for it was already in a power it was coming already in a powerful way. It was coming already in a powerful way. In 8:38, Jesus speaks of him coming with glory. In 9 and 1, he speaks of the kingdom coming, already present, rather, in power. How would the kingdom already come? Why is it that only some of them would see the display of God's kingdom's power? These questions and more are perhaps best answered as we continue on in the text. So take a look at verses 2 to 4. Verses 2 and 4. They seem to answer the question who's going to see this power and how is it going to be displayed? Take a look at verses 2 and 4. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. There's a, a number of peculiar elements in this verse that we need to deal with. Uh, the, the first is, uh, why the mention of six days? Um, I don't know if you, you've been paying close attention to the development of the Gospel of Mark, but nowhere in the Gospel of Mark do we have such a, a very explicit reference to a time frame or a period of time with the exception of the fact that the, that the Christ will rise in three days. Other than that prediction about three days in, in the resurrection of Jesus, there's no other mention of a specific period of time, a specific sequence of time before something would happen. And so the fact that Mark mentions six days in chapter 9, verse 2, might, might be significant. Uh, For those of you that would like to do some extra study, I'll give you a hint of where you can turn. Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, you will notice Moses, after six days, ascending Mount Sinai to go into the cloud and to be in the presence of God. Um, There are some parallels in Exodus 24 and Mark chapter 9, verses 1 to 13, that are uncanny. Uh, and I encourage you to go back on your own and study those parallels. Take note of the fact that this may be paralleling a story from Exodus 24, a story about Moses, and is it not coincidence that one of those standing with Jesus in Mark 9 is Moses? Um, possibilities, okay? These are not foolproof parallels, but these are very possible parallels. So that's possibly the mention of six days there. But what about another question? What, what's the significance of Elijah and uh, Elijah and Moses being a part of uh, this this company this 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 group, if you will. Um, Elijah and Moses were, with the exception of maybe Abraham and David, were two of the greatest patriarchs in all of Israel. Elijah and Moses, along with Abraham and David, would have been the the big four, if you will in terms of Israel's perception of who were their great patriarchs, their great models. Moses, representative of the Old Testament law, the lawgiver, the one who had given Israel the law, having heard it directly from the voice of God. Elijah, the great prophet of Israel, the one who, when Israel turned aside and began to, leave its golden age and turn to sin and idol worship, Elijah was the prophet that stood up to King Ahab and all of Israel and said, it's time to repent and turn to God. With the coming of Elijah came the coming of the greatest prophet in all of Israel. And so these two men, representing the law and the prophets, patriarchs of Israel, it was as if God was confirming... To Peter, James, and John, that this Jesus, their teacher, their master, was precisely the one they thought him to be. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. He had the confirmation of the presence of Elijah and Moses with him. And of course, the Lord speaking, God the Father speaking from the clouds in just a few moments. This was a moment of great confirmatory value in which God, in effect, was telling the disciples, pay attention to whom you're listening to. Now, another reason why Elijah might have been present is that if you recall in Mark, uh, what what did some of the Jews, who did some of the Jews think Jesus was? Elijah. Many of the Jews, as they began to survey Jesus' ministry, to watch His miracles, to listen to His teaching, many of them said, this is the second coming of Elijah. And they based this off of a a passage in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, which the last two verses of the Old Testament, in which God through Malachi declares that Elijah is coming back. And with His coming comes the final day of the Lord. Comes the eschatological final kingdom of God. And so when Jesus arrived on scene, many of the Jews thought this is the second coming of Elijah. And even some of the disciples were wondering if that was the case. And so now, in this story, with Jesus speaking with Elijah and with Moses... It becomes very clear in the disciples' minds that Jesus is not, in fact, Elijah. Nor is He Moses. Nor is He any other of the Old Testament prophets having come back from the dead or come from heaven. Instead, Jesus is unique and distinct from them. He holds a greater place among them. And so... This might be another reason why we see Elijah speaking with Jesus. Now, now last question. What, what happened to Jesus here? It says he was transfigured. What does this mean? Now, this, this is a word that I think um, uh, we, we see in our Bibles and we're kind of like, okay, what, you know, what does that mean? I don't, I don't understand what that word means. The word transfigured in Greek is metamorphathe. Okay? metamorphathe, And... It Basically, we get our English word metamorphosis, of course, from it. And it basically means that Jesus underwent a temporary change. That He underwent a temporary change. Now, Mark seems to indicate that, that Jesus' clothes uh, became exceedingly white. Brilliant white. The, the, the lightest white you could possibly imagine. But Matthew and Luke also indicate that Jesus' face, his very person, not just his garments. And I wore my white suit today, just so you guys could get a glimpse. You know, does it radiate? No. Okay. I just realized I was wearing my my Benny. Uh, never mind. Um, the the garments were not the only thing that changed. It was also Jesus' face that changed, okay? This bright light shone from His face. His face was exceedingly white. Matthew says His face shone like the sun. Luke says the appearance of His face was altered. Why did this happen? Uh, Why would Jesus take three of the disciples, set them on the mountain, Go up a little further and go into a, a state of being whereby he was literally transported to the suburbs of heaven, seeing Elijah, Moses, a great cloud shining forth in brilliant light. Why did this happen? Folks, if we were to read through verses 1 to 13 in its entirety, which, which we've done, but if we were to pay close attention to the way in which it's written, you will notice very carefully, as you will see in Matthew and Luke's account of this same story, that this transfiguration, the story of the transfiguration, was entirely directed at the disciples. You'll often see in the text that it was directed to them. He led them up. They saw this. God said this to them. The entire, uh, the entire story is directed, is given to, and is directed for the disciples' benefit. Now, undoubtedly, Jesus in discussing with Elijah and Moses uh, what He did and and having that communion with God and with Elijah and Moses on the mountain, undoubtedly, Jesus Christ benefited from this experience. He was probably extremely refreshed from this experience. And He came down with a renewed sense of vigor and passion. Of clarity of mission. However, this story, make no mistake about it, was this, this sequence of events was accomplished for the disciples' benefit. It was written to them. It was written for them. And it was an awesome experience. It was unrivaled by any earthly experience. When they saw this experience, they saw something filled with light, with beauty, with power, The disciples caught a glimpse, friends, of the Kingdom of God in all of its glory. They caught a glimpse of it. And as they caught a glimpse of it, it was Jesus' hope that this glimpse of the glory of the Kingdom of God would motivate them, would inspire them, would urge them, would beckon them to do whatever it takes. To enter into and to inherit that glory. The transfiguration story, I would argue, above all else, was a motivational tool. A symbol. One that gave Peter, James, and John a taste of the glory of God that they would share with Jesus in the coming Kingdom. Now, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, the disciples don't entirely grasp the significance of of the symbolic nature of this event. They don't entirely recognize that it's being done to spur them on to go the way of the cross. Jesus intended for it to be a taste of glory to come, but Peter, when he saw this event, he thought in his mind, I never want this to end. I don't want this experience to stop. I want it to be continuous. I want it to continue indefinitely. And so, we see Peter blurting out in verse 5 the following words. Verses 5 and 6. Peter says, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Peter did not want this experience to end. And so he makes uh, the recommendation to Jesus in the midst of this experience. He calls out to his, his Lord, his, his master. He calls him rabbi, which is unique, a very human term for teacher. It's it, it, a little bit confusing why he would use that term in an experience such as that. So, such, such glory taking place around him. And yet, he uses a very human term for Jesus, Rabbi, and he says, I don't want this experience to end. Let me build the three of you tents. Let me build you three shelters. There's three of us, Peter, James, John. We're very capable men. We're tent makers. Uh, We can build three shelters for you to take cover in so that this experience can continue on. You say, where does he? What what is he thinking? Where does he get this idea? You know, we 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 can't know for sure why Peter would have made this kind of a statement, um, but there is heavy heavy suspicion among uh, biblical scholars that the reason Peter is making this statement is because he wants to initiate the final feast of Tabernacles. Uh, on the screen behind me, you'll notice two verses. Uh, one from Leviticus 23 and another from Zechariah 14, verses 16 to 19. And in these two texts, in the Leviticus text, you'll notice the, the initiation of the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, it was a feast, a week-long feast, that was meant to remember the time in Israel... When they lived in tabernacles, lived in tents, lived in shel- temporary shelters made with twigs during the wilderness wandering after leaving Egypt. This week long feast, if you read about it in, in Leviticus 23, it, will, it, it was meant to look back at that Exodus event, to look back at the leaving from Egypt and, to, and going out into the wilderness and having to live in tents to survive, to have shelter. In Zechariah 14, we see very clearly that this same feast is a feast that will be celebrated in the Kingdom of God. If you read the latter part of Zechariah 14, you'll notice very clearly that this feast is going to be celebrated again in the Kingdom of God. And any nation that doesn't celebrate this feast will receive no rain on their crops during the Millennial Kingdom rain. So, It is common knowledge in Israel that the Feast of Tabernacles is to celebrate their deliverance from Egypt. And it is also common knowledge in Israel and among Peter's mind that the the Feast of Tabernacles, when it was celebrated, it would commemorate also the final day of the Lord. The beginning of the Kingdom of God. The beginning of a new era in which they would literally live in tents for that week as a reminder of what God had done in Egypt. Peter, very possibly, is saying, let me make three tabernacles for you. Let me build you three shelters so that we can begin to celebrate once again the final feast of tabernacles. So that we can begin the final kingdom of God right here, right now, in this light and glory and magnificent place. Let me build you three shelters. Let us commence the Feast of Tabernacles. But in Peter's mind, as he would be constructing these shelters, he would be looking forward to a conception of the Kingdom of God that Jesus did not share. In Peter's mind, if he were to build these three shelters, he would participate in the initiation of a Kingdom of God, a concept in his mind that was very political, militaristic, powerful. That conception that Peter had in his mind of the Kingdom of God was not the conception that Jesus wished Peter to have Nor was it the conception that God Almighty from heaven wished Him to have. And so you hear a loud, booming voice coming out in response to Peter's suggestion. Take a look at verse 7. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is My beloved Son. Hear Him. Suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. God the Father speaks from the clouds upon hearing Peter's suggestion. And He says, Peter, I want you to listen to My Son. I want you to listen to My Son. It's very reminiscent of what Moses said when he spoke about Jesus, the coming of Jesus in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses said, from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. It is not your conception of the kingdom, Peter, that we want to initiate right now. It is not your conception of the kingdom that we want to begin right now with the final Feast of Tabernacles. Your role, Peter, your role is to listen to Jesus Christ. To listen to My Son, God says. To hear His words. To not pay attention to your own conceptions about the Kingdom, but to pay attention to His conceptions of the Kingdom of God. And not surprisingly, in verse 8, when all was said and done, it says, suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Listen to Jesus. Let me make it so clear to you that this vision is going to cease and all that you're going to be left with is My Son in front of you. Listen to Him. Pay attention to His teaching about the Kingdom of God. Only Jesus was left. He was to be the sole concern and focus of Peter, James, and John. Now they walk down the mountain. Verse 9. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Once again, how many times have we seen it, friends? Jesus is saying, "Shh, I don't want you to tell anyone about this. Not even a week ago, Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter blurted out, You are the Christ. The Messiah. And Jesus said, Shh, don't tell anyone. And why did He say, Shh, don't tell anyone a week ago when Peter exclaimed that you are the Christ, the Messiah? Why did Jesus put a gag order on a true statement? Because Peter and the disciples had the wrong conception of the Kingdom of God. They did not know what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. And so once again, upon seeing this great vision, upon seeing this glimpse of glory into the Kingdom of God, upon thinking in their minds, we should start the Feast of Tabernacles. We should begin. We should usher in the Kingdom right here, right now. Jesus says, shh, don't tell anyone about what you've seen because your conception, your perception of what you've just seen is off. You're missing the mark. And so I want you to keep quiet until you can watch the rest of my life, watch me die and rise up. And at that time, you will recognize the purpose of what I have just shown you. The purpose of my transfiguration. R.T. France writes, It is likely that the transfiguration event would have sparked off the same sort of triumphalism and misdirected hopes which made the term Christ Messiah itself so hazardous. It's a little low. I wish you could read that a little clearly. But I'll read it one more time. It is likely... That the transfiguration event would have sparked off the same sort of triumphalism in the disciples and misdirected hopes which made the term Christ Messiah itself so hazardous. Same thing is happening here in Mark 9 as it did at the end of Mark 8. And now we come to the final three verses. Amazing and peculiar verses. Some that are difficult to interpret, but let's walk it through together. And they asked Jesus, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that He must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come. And they did to him whatever... They wished as it was written of him. They're walking down the mountain. They're done with the experience. They're still trying to think how come we didn't start the Feast of Tabernacles? And why is Jesus telling us to be quiet until he rises from the dead? And and what does that even mean? What does it mean that that he's going to rise from the dead? They're, They're unsure completely. What's going on? And now they're walking down the mountain and they're thinking in their minds, "Well, well, wait a minute, we just saw Elijah. We just saw Elijah. And the scriptures say in Malachi 4 5 and 6 that when Elijah comes, the kingdom comes. When Elijah comes, Messiah ascends to the throne. And so they they inquire one more time to Jesus. They say, well, now, uh, Jesus, tell us, why is it that the scribes, the the Jewish interpreters of the law, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, they also believe this. This was not just the scribes' view. This was common knowledge throughout Israel. But they're maybe setting themselves apart from the scribes and saying, you know, they, they believe this. Why do they believe this? I want to walk you through in uh, in kind of a a table format what's taking place in verses 11 to 13. Difficult to conceptualize until maybe we see this table. So, we're going to answer the question, what what is Elijah's second coming? We're going to answer it from the perspective of the scribes' and disciples' view. And we're going to answer it from the perspective of Jesus' view. And at the conclusion of this table, I think you're going to be able to read verses 11 to 13 a little bit more clearly and recognize its significance. First, let's start at the top left. What did the scribes and disciples think about the second coming of Elijah? They thought this, that Elijah is coming again for divine justice, seeking to judge and condemn God's enemies. Elijah's coming again, but he's coming for divine justice, seeking to judge and condemn God's enemies. Secondly, Elijah's coming will soon prompt militaristic campaigns against God's enemies and the establishment of the powerful powerful messianic kingdom. They, they 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 read Malachi 4 and 5 and it spoke about the dreadful day of the Lord. And so they found in their minds this must be a this must be a powerful militaristic campaign in which God's enemies are shattered and Messiah ascends to the political throne. Thirdly, They thought that as Elijah will come in power, so also the Messiah will come in power. They thought in terms of power, folks. Fourthly, they said, Elijah has not yet come again. All of this has not yet happened, in their view. Elijah has not yet come again, and therefore, lastly, the kingdom has not begun. The kingdom has not begun. Now, of course, the disciples just saw Elijah. So they were wondering, well, does this mean He has come? Does this mean the kingdom is beginning? Does this mean military campaigns and political maneuvers are now going to commence? Thus, their question, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? But let's now look at Jesus' view. I'm going to go a little bit out of order here. Jesus considered it this way, starting from toward the bottom there. Elijah has come again in the person of John the Baptist. Elijah has come again in the person of John the Baptist. If you read Matthew 17 uh, and also other parts of the Gospels, you will see clearly that Jesus likens Elijah The second coming of Elijah to the coming of John the Baptist. In fact, Luke uh, has Jesus saying that, that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And because Elijah has come in the person of John the Baptist, the kingdom has begun. The kingdom has begun on the bottom right hand corner of your outline there. The kingdom has begun. Only it's not the kind of kingdom the scribes and disciples thought it would be. Toward the top, you see, Elijah, or John now, in coming in the coming of Elijah, has come with a message of grace and forgiveness, pointing the way to glory by means of suffering and death. He hasn't come with divine justice, with judgment and condemnation. Instead, he's come with grace and forgiveness, pointing the way to glory by means of suffering and death. It's also the case that the Kingdom of God... Uh, is, is just not like what the scribes and disciples envisioned. Instead of being a militaristic campaign against God's enemies, instead of being one that focuses on the political rule of Messiah, this kingdom would be ruled by the Spirit of God in human hearts. And so Elijah and John has come and has laid the groundwork for redemption and a spiritual harvest of souls through faith in Jesus the Messiah. Not militaristic. Not political. Redeeming souls by faith in the Messiah. This kingdom, in the scribes' view, was by power and by might. But in Jesus' view, it would be built upon great sacrifice and trial. As Elijah or John has come and suffered, so also Jesus the Messiah has come to suffer and die. In summary, what is the point of verses 12 and 13 of Mark 9? I would say this. Jesus is yet again dispelling the disciples' perspective that Elijah's second coming will usher in a fundamentally political and militaristic kingdom of God. Instead, Jesus suggests that Elijah's second coming will not be unlike his first. One filled with pain and even death threats, which Elijah experienced. And just as Elijah persevered through trials and was taken up to heaven in glory, so also Jesus will persevere through suffering and death and will also be raised up in glory. Throughout the ages, God's plan remains the same. The journey to glory begins on the path of suffering. The journey to glory begins on the path of suffering. The disciples were looking for the second coming of Elijah, thinking that it would usher in this political and militaristic kingdom. And Jesus was saying, He's already come in the person of John the Baptist. John has laid the groundwork of the kingdom of God that I've come to establish, Jesus says. One filled with hope, peace, reconciliation, redemption of human souls. How can we learn from this story? There's a lot in this story that, uh, you know, it's a lot of head knowledge. I don't doubt that. You know, we're reading this story and we're saying, well, this can't really apply to my life very well, can it? Maybe it's just a story I need to know about, be aware of. Um And I wrestled, I'll be honest with you, I wrestled greatly with how to how does any personal application come from this story. But I think there is a good deal to learn from the story of the transfiguration and, and the teaching of Jesus therein. And these are some thoughts that I want you to consider. Friends, Jesus is saying clearly in Mark 9, the kingdom is already here. It has not yet taken the political form hoped for by the scribes and disciples but it is nevertheless present in power. Now at times, the Kingdom is manifested to us in glorious ways. In glorious ways. At times, we have a transfiguration-like moment where we see a miracle. We see a healing. We see an answer to prayer that we say, this could have been nothing but God's hand. So there are times when, when we, like Peter, James, and John, Ascend the mountain and meet God in a very real and radical way. And we've seen that in our church. We've seen amazing things that God is doing in our church. Healing uh, those in our church whom we've prayed for. But at other times, the kingdom is manifested through suffering. Enduring trials, hardships, persecutions for the sake of Jesus and the Gospel. So on the one sense, we see the kingdom in glory. And on the other sense, we see the kingdom with suffering. But in all of this, the kingdom of God is here. So whether we are experiencing the kingdom's glory now, in our life, right now, or whether we are waiting patiently for our suffering to end in glory, we know that we are actively participating in God's reign. Let me read that again. So whether we are experiencing the kingdom's glory now, whether you're seeing miracles, healings, answers to prayer, vivid experiences of God in your life today, whether you're experiencing that Kingdom glory now, or whether you are waiting for it, waiting patiently for it through trials, hardships, and suffering, recognize that it is still here. The Kingdom is still here. And sometimes, the path to glory begins on the road of suffering. Friends, the Kingdom is already here. Let us open our eyes and recognize that it comes in the powerful experiences of healing and miracles, answers to prayer, but it is also real and present in the times of weakness and suffering and pain as we wait for glory. Let us pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for... uh, Just look into Your Word. I thank You that um, there are times when You show us the Kingdom in all of its glory. When You heal one of the sick. When You bring eternal life to a lost soul. When You answer our prayers. We see Your Kingdom in all of its glory. But Lord, there are other times when we are waiting patiently for that glory. When we're waiting patiently for that glory to come and we are in a time of suffering, a time of hardship, a time of trial. I pray, Lord, that we would not lose heart waiting for that glory. Father, You intended the transfiguration of Your Son to be a motivational tool to continue on the way of the cross. And I pray that we like the disciples, can look upon that event and recognize that it is spurring us on to persevere through trials as we await Your glory. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.